Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with UCSF resident John Hartman. During our conversation, John talks about the history of psychedelics, recent medical studies on the effectiveness of psychedelics on treating addiction, depression, and other ailments, and the timeline of when these substances may become available as legal medical treatments. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm sitting down with John Hartman, a fourth-year resident at the University of California, San Francisco in the psychiatry department. Um, John, thanks so much for taking time, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I'd love to start just by kind of learning about your interest in psychiatry. Have you always wanted to go into what you study now and and the field that you work in? No, it was really something that developed over time for me. Um, I had taken some psychology courses during undergrad. I think at that time it was um, definitely a, an area of interest. Um, but I went into medical school not really knowing what I was going to do, um, kind of thinking that it would really leave the door open to doing a lot of different things. Um, and then I think I just was fascinated by talking with the patients in psychiatry and found myself really fascinated with their stories and getting to spend more time with patients um, and kind of relate to people in a different way. Um, I just really found that compelling. And um, after doing some rotations in psychiatry, had no doubt that mm-hmm. there was anything else I'd rather do. What What are some of those stories? What What are the people that you met? What What kind of things do you remember about them that got you particularly interested in them? Good question. Um, I remember um, I remember doing a rotation at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in psychiatric emergency uh, services there, and um, and just having people come in kind of in crisis and um, being kind of the first people they're talking to um, when, you know, their life is basically in chaos. Um, And I don't know, feeling, um, I don't know, uh, just, it felt like a special thing to be able to be there for um, people in that kind of um, crisis mode. Um, It's, it's, um, I can, I can definitely remember some of the people that I, that I worked with, um, but um, but it's more just the general impressions of of being there in that state um, with somebody that um, that really sticks with me and that um, I think drew me to the field. People who are in crisis mode like that is it generally brought on by stress or by genes or by all of the above? How do people get to a point where they really are end up in the emergency room of a psychiatric wing? That's a good question. I'd say generally, um, the vast majority of the time, there's some kind of stressor. There's something that happened, um, either, you know, a major loss or um, some kind of conflict or um, something that we would call a psychosocial stressor that that tips somebody over the edge. Um, But typically, they're is some kind of um, predisposition to it, either 
Um, it could be genetic. Um, it could, uh, you know, sometimes people have a family history of, of either depression, anxiety, psychosis. Um, but, um, but generally, you know, something major happens that mm-hmm. really kind of um, pushes somebody over the edge of, you know, their ability to cope with something that really um, feels traumatic or feels stressful. So that's when they, they come to us either either feeling, you know, overwhelming anxiety or suicidal thoughts um, or sometimes, you know, going into kind of a, um, you know, a psychotic mm-hmm. um, kind of place. I'd love to know kind of what's the difference between how we kind of treat people that have psychological psychological disorders or or in that state where they come into a hospital or a psychiatric wing and they need your help now versus 50 years ago or 100 years ago i mean how much progress generally would you say has been made and and what's the difference of kind of how those people are are viewed from a medical perspective that's a good question uh things have definitely changed significantly Mm -hmm. um the major difference now is that we we have more medications to help people in that acute phase. Mm-hmm. Um, for people that are having a, an acute psychotic episode, um, we have medications that we can give to help calm down either the the voices or the paranoia. Um, you know, and hundred years ago, people you know we didn't have those, mm-hmm. uh, and so there was you know much more there was need for um you know for um calming patients down but in like a a forceful manner so more use of restraints seclusion Um, we try to avoid those these days Uh, and i think medications help help quite a bit um and then for you know anxiety and um depression i think um yeah we we also um are able to uh, address that to some extent with medication, although um, you know a lot of these illnesses are things that take a long time to to really get a, a handle on and to treat. Um, but at least the acute phase, I think we can deal with in a more a more humane way than mm-hmm. than we could a hundred years ago. And it seems like from the little that I know about it, 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 it does seem like it used to be viewed those, you know, if you were, someone broke into a, a psychotic state or were, was severely depressed, that that would be viewed, was viewed historically as, as a character flaw, that it was something that was a, an internal issue that someone was not capable of, of dealing with. Um, has that changed? Is there a medical consensus now that these things don't necessarily have to do with your character, but perhaps are are more biologically based. Yeah, it certainly has to an extent. There's still quite a bit of stigma around mental illness. Um, But it's, uh, you know, there's evidence that's accumulated that, that shows us that, um, you know, these, these illnesses are heritable. Mm -hmm. Um, They can be transmitted through families. Um, So there is a, a genetic component, um, and I think that helps take some of the stigma um, um, away. away, away. Um, but it's, uh, it's certainly not gone. Uh, people still often have trouble seeking treatment because of the label, uh, not wanting to have a label. Um, so, 
it's certainly changed, but it's still got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. So we got connected because of a mutual friend who learned about a presentation that you recently gave at UCSF about psychedelics and the use of psychedelics now, or at least the beginning of research um, involved with psychedelics in dealing with um, addiction, I believe was the presentation that you gave. That's right. The, the psychedelic industry as a whole is talk about stigma is a, is a part of American society that has just sort of been demonized for almost its entire existence. It seems like before we get into the medical aspect of what's being introduced now, what's the reason for that? Is, is, are there, are there specific reasons why medical research has been limited with psychedelics? Why psychedelics generally are, are viewed with such suspicion in, in our society? Yeah, so um, a lot of people don't realize, but um, psychedelics were not always demonized. Mm -hmm. um, they were actually um, studied as therapeutic tools back in the um, late 40s, early 50s, um, and pretty much up until um, you know the 60s with the kind of explosion of recreational use. Mm -hmm. um, there were over... A thousand clinical papers published, over forty thousand patients treated, um, and they were taken seriously by academic researchers. Um, and this was all, you know, a lot of this was before LSD was being used on the streets. Um, but it was really the the crackdown happened uh, in the late sixties, early seventies, um, due to widespread abuse and. Uh, consequences of, of recreational abuse. Um, and it really took a long time for um, that, um, the kind of reactionary um, stance of American culture to, you know, to reintroduce these in kind of a safer way. Um, people still, you know, have have some, uh, there's certainly still stigma around these drugs. Hmm. Um, people think of uh, psychedelic drugs and they generally think of, um, they think of the 60s. They think of, you know, Grateful Dead. They think of Jimi Hendrix. Um, they think of people, you know, having freakouts and being in emergency rooms and, um, you know, maybe Charlie Manson. Like there's a lot of pretty significant, um, like, not that the great, there's anything wrong with the Grateful Dead, but um, there's there's a lot of uh, you know non medical kind of associations uh, with these drugs now, um, and so really it was a good thirty years. Um, there were maybe one or two studies during that during done during that time, but um, it was a good thirty years where no research was done really, um, and. Johns Hopkins um, really got this uh, study with psilocybin um, through uh, through their IRB. They got DEA approval. They um, were able to do the study, um, and they were the first ones to to kind of um, start the ball rolling again mm -hmm. and, and and show that it could be done mm -hmm. by serious academic researchers. Um, and they had to kind of fight through the stigma, but um, there's there's a lot of evidence that these are safe physiologically. Um, you know, people don't overdose on these drugs. Um, 
They don't cause dependence. Um, unlike a lot of other drugs that are, um, you know, in the schedule one, the highest, um, classification for drugs of abuse. Um, these, these ones, they don't cause dependence. In fact, we're trying to use them in the context of psychotherapy to treat drug dependence. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so these guys at Hopkins, uh, Roland Griffiths and his um, co-workers have, have shown that, you know, we can, uh, they've laid out a blueprint for how to do these studies. They've shown the safety, you know, that, that, that they can be safely administered to healthy um, people um, and, you know, without any significant adverse um, side effects. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the studies too much, mm -hmm. when, when we say psychedelics, what does that mean from a scientific or medical standpoint? What, what's the difference between a psychedelic and some other drug? Good question. Um, so the word psychedelic has been used kind of synonymously with hallucinogen. Hmm. Um, I actually like the word psychedelic more because uh, I, I think they, um, I think the word hallucinogen is kind of misleading. Um, psychedelics don't normally actually cause true hallucinations. Hmm. Um, they uh, and the word psychedelic in Greek means mind manifesting, and so um, there's a kind of an idea that it catalyzes some kind of um, mental experience, um, some mind opening type of experience. But um, what defines a psychedelic drug is that it um, it uh, fits in a particular receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor. It's a sub uh, subtype of a serotonin receptor. Mm -hmm. Um, and drugs that are, um, that activate this receptor, um, are, uh, many of them are, have psychedelic type effects. Mm. Um, so that includes LSD or acid, um, psilocybin, which is the active compound in mushrooms or mescaline, which is act active compound in peyote. Mm. Um, those are the three common ones that are thought of, um, that kind of encompasses, uh, psychedelics and is there is there one particular person or an experiment that brought that discovered psychedelics and brought it into the western culture and what what's the history of where psychedelics have been used and, and how did it come to america <clears throat> a lot of interesting stories around that um so there was a swiss chemist named albert hoffman um, who was actually researching um, drugs that he hoped would, um, help stop bleeding, uh, that would have some kind of hemostatic effect. Um, and one of the drugs that he synthesized was LSD. Um, he actually didn't find this class of drugs to be very helpful, um, for what he was studying them for and put them on a shelf. And, um, for some reason, 10 years later, I think it was 1943, um, decided to um, resynthesize these drugs. Um, and he, the story goes that he, um, he was uh, working in his lab and he um, felt a little bit, a little bit off, um, felt like something was different uh, and, and thought that it was possible that he had accidentally ingested um, some drug, either because, you know, through his skin or aerosolized. Um, and so he decided to test the compound on himself, which is something that 
medicinal chemists did back in the day. Um, <laughs> but starting with the a dose that was lower than any imaginably um, you know effective dose, so a, a quarter of a milligram, um, which happens to be a, a pretty large dose of LSD. <laughs> And so he, uh, in 1943, um, administered the first dose of LSD um, on purpose to a human and um, ended up riding his bike home um, through uh, Basel, Switzerland, uh, and said he, you know, had a, a terrifying experience of, um, you know, uh, kind of psychotic-like phenomenon and... Um, it was just so he was the first one uh, to have the LSD experience. Um, Sandoz, the company that he was working for, ended up um, sending samples to uh, psychiatrists um, around Europe uh, with an interest in studying kind of the psychotomimetic effects mm -hmm. of LSD and also. Um, I, th I think initially it was more to study, um, you know, how these drugs mimic psychosis, but also um, it wasn't long before people got interested in uh, potential therapeutic uses for them as well. And then for um, for mushrooms, um, mushrooms have been used um, for millennia um, in, in uh, the... Central America, um, and uh, it wasn't until 1957, I want to say, um, that an American um, banker by the name of Gordon Wasson uh, went down to Mexico and um, found uh, a woman who was uh, giving these mushrooms, or, you know, I guess... Um, using these mushrooms in kind of a sacramental mm -hmm. um, ritual context. Uh, and so he was, this was after LSD had, you know, kind of been introduced to Europe. Um, the mushrooms kind of came on the scene for Western, uh, the Western culture uh, a little bit later, mm -hmm. like in the late 50s. Um, so, yeah, lots of interesting <laughs> history behind those two. So the the mushroom ceremonies, and that, that was my understanding too. And I, I think generally, with my understanding about peyote was that it was also a part of of ancient rituals as well in in Central American cultures. Um, do peyote and mushroom are do peyote and mushrooms are they can they be produced naturally, whereas LSD can only really be synthesized through a long, elaborate science procedure? Yeah, that's right. Um... There are a number of species of mushrooms that have uh, psilocybin um, naturally produced. Mm. Um, and there are just a, a few types of cacti that produce mescaline and mm. related alkaloids. Um, and yeah, you're right, LSD um, is a synthetic, uh, or at least a semi-synthetic um, product. There are things in nature that are somewhat similar to um, LSD, but it is... Um, it's not something that's found naturally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So just to, just to clarify about the initial discovery of LSD. So the Swiss chemist was literally trying to discover a and create some sort of a material or substance that would allow for the closure of cuts. Was that mm -hmm. what he was trying to do? And, and just by pure 
accident he ends up creating LSD. Yeah, so my um, my understanding, and I'm I'm fairly certain, but not 100 percent certain about this, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, that Sandoz was looking for drugs that could be used uh, for childbirth um, mm. or postpartum hemorrhage, mm. um, and there are drugs that are very similar um, that are used to stop bleeding with mm-hmm. po- postpartum hemorrhage mm-hmm. um, that have a very strong kind of uh, hemostatic effect or mm. clotting effect. Mm. Um, yeah. And of the three that we just we were just discussing, acid peyote and mushrooms, are there very important differences between the three in terms of what the experience would be like? And, and how about the intensity, or the difference in intensity between the three? So... Generally, people uh, who have tried the different substances say that there are uh, subjective or qualitative differences between them. Mm. Um, but uh, as far as intensity, I think it's dose dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, uh, you know, at a certain dose, um, they are rather mild, um, but at a at a higher dose, they have very intense effects and all three of them can have intense effects. They have different durations. Mm. Um, so most of the studies now are using psilocybin because it's shorter acting. Mm. It generally lasts from six to up to eight hours. Uh, whereas LSD and mescaline last, um, 10 to 12 hours mm. or mm. longer. Uh, so it's, it'd be hard for researchers to, uh, you know, be present for a, you know, a 12 hour drug trip mm-hmm. compared to, you know, six hours is much more manageable. Yeah. And the, the reputation, I, I remember being raised and, and having the understanding that psychedelics not wasn't necessarily a guarantee, but a, a distinct possibility of consuming psychedelics would be going into a permanent state of psychosis uh, for the rest of your life where you would never be able to kind of break out or that you would at least be fundamentally changed psychologically if you took these drugs. Is there any proof that that's true? And and if so, how frequently does that happen? There is a lot of, a lot of fear and, um, and uh, have hysteria around these drugs. And there's really not a, any evidence to support, um, to support that idea that they cause psychosis. And back in the 60s and 70s, um, as I said, tens of thousands of patients were treated. And the rates of psychosis were um, as low or lower than what we'd expect for just the population at large. Um, So extremely small. Um, And uh, there is some kind of anecdotal evidence that for people who have a predisposition to a psychotic illness like schizophrenia, that using psychedelic drugs um, or marijuana for that matter can unmask Mm. uh, mental illness earlier um, because they can be in the wrong setting. They can be um, very stressful uh, and potentially even traumatic type of experiences. Um, But as far as causing psychosis in a healthy person, um, you know, uh, or causing a lasting psychosis in a healthy person, there's not any evidence to support that. Mm. Getting back to the, the medical testing and, and sort of the reintroduction of, of psychedelics as a form of, of medical research, 
when did the Hopkins team uh, begin to do their their medical research? And, and talk, if you can, a little bit about what, what they discovered. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so there was um, there was actually a a guy, um, a researcher at uh, University of New Mexico, who um, first did the did a study with a, a different psychedelic um, called dimethyltryptamine. Um, and he kind of laid out a blueprint for getting these drugs approved. Um, and it was roughly um, a decade later before the uh, folks at Hopkins started getting interested in, in trying to do this research. So it was um, around um, early 2000s mm-hmm. that they started putting together the idea of, of doing this research. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a researcher by the name of Roland Griffiths who had um, had a very um, good track record of doing clinical trials um, with um, you know using drugs in in humans and um, kind of knew um, knew the ropes and mm-hmm. you know was very comfortable with the research process um, and he had an interest actually in um, had an interest in meditation and spirituality and hoped to, um, I think he was introduced to the idea of studying psychedelics um, as a possible means of inducing um, religious-like phenomena in in healthy volunteers. Mm. Um, And so he... um, His first study was with um, healthy normal volunteers, um, no prior drug experience. These were people who were middle-aged, highly educated. I think 50% had postgraduate degrees and um, were just interested in either interested in the effects of psilocybin or interested in the opportunity for intensive self-reflection. Um, and so he had uh, these folks um, enroll in the study. First study, they were given one uh, a single dose of psilocybin. Um, they had preparatory sessions where they kind of oriented people to the experience um, and then follow-up sessions afterwards. Mm. Um, but the, really the focus was on um, on um, you know this uh, psilocybin uh, session uh, where volunteers lay on a couch for six hours. Mm. Uh, two therapists are present. They have eye shades on for the majority of the experience. Uh, they have music, um, but it is, it's uh, supposed to be an introspective experience. So mm-hmm. they're encouraged to go inward and kind of go, go with the experience. Um, and his findings were, um, so he was, he was looking at a, a few things. He was looking at, um, at, um, kind of, changes um, in mood and behavior, um, and then also um, looking at um, kind of spiritual qualities of of the experience. Um, And uh, so they had a couple of follow-up points. Um, After the study, they had uh, one follow-up, I think was at two months, and then another one at 14 months. Um, And at 14 months out, um, participants were asked to to rate how how personally meaningful uh, mm-hmm. was this experience? So we have you know six hours on a couch, um, 
controlled setting. Um, and you know, what, you know, what would you guess? Like what percent of people would say like this was one of the top five most meaningful experiences in my entire life? I would guess because I think I've read about snippets about this. I think it's quite high, correct? I mean, yeah. far above fifty percent. Yeah. So the the first study, um, it was sixty seven percent. Okay. Um, they did a follow up where they gave um, volunteers three different doses. Um, so they had three different tries, and ninety five percent reported this was up there top five. You know, these are people who had children, had been married, had, you know, lots of major life events to compete, you know, with this. Um, but they, they found this, um, kind of that level of, um, of meaningfulness, uh, to them. And I think that's, that's incredibly striking. Uh, 40% actually said it was the number one, uh, most significant experience of their entire life. Um, so that, that uh, is a fascinating thing to me. Um, now, whether or not that translates into lasting changes in mood and behavior um, is another question. And this study attempted to get at that. Um, they did ask the patient or the, the volunteers and then community observers, either spouses or friends, um, about uh, changes in mood and behavior. And roughly 70 to 80 percent in the second study uh, reported positive changes in mood and behavior. Um, now, I think, um, you know, when we t start talking about addiction or treatment of um, specific um, you know, disorders uh, that will need more, you know, more specific objective outcomes. Mm -hmm. But in this group, people thought that the experience was not only meaningful, but it it uh, caused lasting changes as well. And when you say significant, that it's a, the, one of the most significant or the most significant experiences of their life, what does that mean? And what's going on in there? What, what, what is it? Is it totally subjective? It, it it depends on the person. Each person goes through that experience in a completely different way. Or are there themes that are are recurring throughout the, the patients? So. As I said, this study, they were looking at um, spiritual type effects. And so they had uh, they administered um, scales that were developed in the psychology of religion field um, to define mystical type experiences. Um, and so they had different subscales of um, things like um, sacredness, um, um, a sense of uh, kind of deeper truth or meaning, like getting in touch with um, a deeper truth, um, a sense of um, wonder, or awe, um, positive mood. Um, there are there are you know six dimensions of kind of this uh, mystical type experience, and people that tended to score higher on those six subscales tended to be the ones that had more positive, uh, mm -hmm. lasting changes to mood and behavior. Um, and so these are, you know, these are things like that you can measure. Mm -hmm. They are subjective, but they're things that you can measure like any other, you know, subjective, um, you know, quality to the experience. Mm -hmm. And are there during, during those tests, the, the more recent tests, are there, are there any experiences of people going into a psychotic state or 
referencing during their experience that they were petrified or terrified or had some sort of a traumatic experience or, or not really? So, so a number of the participants, actually a, a significant number, had um, had uh, significant anxiety during the experience. Up to, I think, 40% had um, at least a period during the experience where they um, reported significant anxiety. Um, I think um, also a number of um, the volunteers had transient episodes of paranoia. Mm. Um, and so uh, these these are kind of things that could become problematic, you know, in an uncontrolled setting. But in uh, in this setting um, where there are two therapists present mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to help guide the experience and ground the participant, um, they're, they're actually quite safe. And nobody reported feeling uh, harmed by by the experience. Mm. And, and are people generally dealing with some sort of problem that they haven't been able to face prior to this experience? Are they just having an overwhelmingly positive sensation? I mean, it sounds like it's a variety of different states um, depending on the person, but is, is part of the, the positivity about it and, and perhaps the, the long lasting change, a almost like an opening up of problem solving in the mind. Is, is that part of what's happening? Yeah, I guess I, I, started by describing the mystical type experience, but, um, but these are very personal experiences for people. Um, and so there is often, uh, a report of kind of new perspective on the self or on the world or kind of relationships. Um, and so getting back to the, the effects uh, most people think of kind of the perceptual effects of psychedelics, but the cognitive and the emotional effects, I think, are where the more that's the more interesting part. Mm. Um, people report um, enhanced introspection, um, kind of an increased um, uh, like a increased uh, thought pro- like rate of thought process, uh, kind of a speeding up of thoughts, new associations. Um, so. It, an ability to think about things in different ways. Um, and so for some uh, patients in the studies of alcoholism, um, people report having just a, a totally new, new perspective on, um, on their illness, on their alcoholism and, mm. um, just, uh, you know, report that they, um, they no longer feel a need to drink. Um, there's some very early data coming out on the alcoholism uh, stuff, but there are a number of trials that are underway looking at that. Hmm. So let, let's get into that. Let's let's talk about the the addiction component of this and, and some tests that have been done about with people who who are dealing with um, with some form of addiction. Is it primarily the research that's come out related to people who are addicted to alcohol, or is it a variety of different drugs too? So the first study. That was that's been done recently was actually with nicotine dependence, mm. and the researchers. This was done at Hopkins. I think they chose nicotine dependence because it tends to be a cleaner addiction. Um, it tends to be um, people that are maybe slightly higher functioning that don't have other comorbidities or other illnesses. Mm. Um, often, 
severe alcoholism can come with, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, social consequences um, that aren't there so much in nicotine dependence. Uh, and so that study um, was very small, it was open label, so people knew what they were, they knew what they were getting, there was no, you know, um, blind. Um, but uh, the, the efficacy rate of, um, or the rate of abstinence, I think it, uh, over a year out was um, somewhere, I, I want to say like 70, 80%, like, a, a, you know, a very high rate of quitting tobacco. Altogether. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's other drugs, there's treatments out there, and it's you can't really compare it to other treatments because this was open label, uh, small, um, but treatments like uh, Chantix and nicotine replacement, um, you know, they success rates is, you know, are much lower mm-hmm. uh, with those. Uh, and, you know, it's likely it'll come, it's not going to be 70 plus percent uh, in larger population. Um, but it was found to be quite effective. Mm. Uh, and these are, these are drugs that, you know, don't interact with the nicotine receptor at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's thought that there's some kind of psychological, um, you know, mechanism or, you know, maybe some neurobiological uh, component too, but um, that's allowing people to give up long-standing addictions. And the people who take the drugs, I mean, afterwards when they're asked, what was it about the experience that let you kick a habit that you may have been addicted to for years of your life? What do they say? It's a good question. Um, you know, the, the one thing that stands out to me is, uh, a woman uh, in one of the alcohol alcoholism trials who said that during her psilocybin experience, she forgot that she was an alcoholic. Um, and she kind of saw herself as uh, a depressed person and realized um, kind of that she was using alcohol to cover up something or cope. Um, and that it was kind of getting in the way of um, her actually enjoying her life as much as she felt like she could or she should. Um, and so she said it was, um, it was really the insight for her as the personal insight of what the role of alcohol was in her life that, um, allowed her to stop drinking. Mm. Um, and, and is that, that theme of extracting some nugget of wisdom or some insight from the experience with psilocybin is that, you know, whether that's realizing that alcohol is masking your depression and that's why you're drinking, is it generally some sort of conclusion that's so firmly felt and certain within that person's mind that they come out of that drug experience and they're kind of changed? Yeah, it's, I think it's too early to really, we really don't know Mm -hmm. what's going on. Uh, in, in the psilocybin experience that is causing uh, lasting change. Um, but there's, you know, there's something that's mediating this longer-term effect because mm-hmm. um, it's not just, you know, um, you're not just affecting a receptor. Um, you know, there, there must be something that mediates a longer-term effect. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. can't... Um, any other treatment uh, requires, you know, daily dosing over a long period of time. 
Uh, so this is totally different mm -hmm. mechanism of action. And when when we're when we're talking about alcoholics, is there a certain medical definition that a person must have met, or even someone who is addicted to nicotine, they have to smoke at least this many cigarettes per day or drink this many drinks per day? And if so, what what were those um, kind of verticals? That's a good question. I I don't know for the smoking uh, trial, um, but there are clearly defined. Uh, it's, it's clearly defined, you know, in the DSM kind of what, um, you know, what alcohol dependence is or what nicotine dependence is. Um, and my, my impression was that, you know, these are people who like had a serious problem, mm -hmm. not just, you know, casual, mm -hmm. um, occasional users. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact, um, entry criteria. Mm -hmm. Perhaps some sort of physiological dependency on, on the, on alcohol or, or nicotine to get through in a day. Something like that. That's a good question. I don't know if physiologic dependence was uh, was necessary for the alcoholism trial, okay. um, but there was a certain number of drinks um, per week, um, I believe that to, mm -hmm. to be in the trial. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd have to look that up okay. to, to know for sure what what it was. You mentioned that in the nicotine study that the abstinence rate a year out was something like seventy percent. Was what what was the absence rate for people that were alcoholics and and whatever that number was? Did that mean that they gave up drinking permanently, or they got their drinking down to a level that was tolerable? So the alcoholism trials are yet to be published. Mm -hmm. um, there were a number of trials done back in the sixties and seventies, but the methods were just not up to today's standards. Uh, a lot of the trials didn't have a um, they weren't randomized or, um, they weren't blinded, you know, they didn't try to blind it or, um, you know, it wasn't clearly defined, like how are they selecting participants? Um, but there was a meta-analysis done recently that looked at the best design trials. So the ones that did randomize, they had a, you know, clear entry criteria, clear follow-up measures, um, and um, this study found an effect in favor of um, LSD assisted psychotherapy. And even these trials, there was a huge range of kind of how they did things. Some mm -hmm. paid a lot of attention to preparing people and um, having therapists present, doing follow up, and others um, they gave people high dose psychedelics and didn't really do a whole lot of follow up. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of surprised that people didn't get worse in those groups. But they found an effect um, grouping the best design studies together. They found an effect in favor of LSD um, at the first time point. Um, now there's a research group at University of New Mexico headed by Michael Bogenschutz uh, who have completed an open-label trial. And um, Could you define should... what that means, an open-label trial? Sure. So... Open label, um, unlike a blinded trial, mm -hmm. means that people know what they're getting. Right. So you sign up and you you know you're getting you know certain dose of psilocybin. Mm -hmm. uh, a blinded trial, you know, it, um, the Hopkins group they uh, gave one group psilocybin and one group a high dose of Ritalin or methylphenidate, <laughs> um, and uh, 
So they weren't sure what they were going to get. They weren't sure what dose they were going to get. Right. And so there was some uncertainty um, to kind of reduce the expectancy gotcha. bias. Um, so they, the open label study uh, was recently completed at University of New Mexico. Now there's a study. Um, I believe it's being done at, um, just started up at NYU and New Mexico, kind of a two-site uh, study uh, of alcoholism uh, treatment. And and these studies, it, it is different um, than kind of the Hopkins Healthy Volunteer Study because it's psychotherapy. Um, people come in for, I think, 12 sessions usually, and they have uh, typically one or two sessions where they receive psilocybin. Mm. Uh, but they get kind of uh, standard of care treatment, um, which has been motivational enhancement therapy, you know, along with the psilocybin treatment. Um, and so those two studies are, are those uh, studies are underway. Um, the open label trial, though, did uh, find that drinking was reduced drastically after mm. the psilocybin session. Mm. And so they had people, um, you know, uh, report their their amount of drinking at study entry, uh, and then at four weeks after they've been receiving the psychotherapy but not the drug, and then after receiving the drug, um, their drinking dropped off pretty drastically. Um, I believe those uh, that that study should be published within the next uh, couple months if it's not already published. Mm. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what the bigger studies show. As these studies come out and as these results begin to get published, is this just throwing a bomb in the field of psychiatry? Or, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. Is it is it revolutionizing psychology? Is this something that everybody's talking about and has the potential to really change the way that doctors treat patients who are dealing with psychological issues? So this is, uh, this is something that people are starting to talk about. Um, it's still very, um, it's uncertain, it's unproven um, until, the, until some bigger studies um, show efficacy for this treatment. Um, people aren't going to be so interested. Um, but I think, uh, I think people in general, uh, when they learn about, you know, what's going on and um, that, you know, early research is somewhat promising, I think people are interested because it is so different. It's mm. uh, just kind of a, a novel um, treatment paradigm. Um, you know, we don't have anything else like it in mm. psychiatry. And we have things like ECT, um, you know, where you do kind of a, a, a treatment and you can expect like a pretty significant response. Um, but you know, this is a drug that we're giving once or twice um, that, you know, may have a lasting response. And so there's, there's really, there's no other drug treatment like it. No mm -hmm. other, um, no, uh, I mean, it's totally different than anything we have. So I think people will be, um, if, if this kind of pans out, I think people will be really interested. Mm -hmm. uh, I still don't see it um, revolutionizing all of psychiatric treatment. I think this is, you know, uh, right now, we're just looking at addictions. We're looking at, you know, uh, these trials are enrolling people who um, who have pretty good social support. They have, um, you know, um, kind of 
room to to improve and they've got people to to help them um i think uh i think there's specific target populations that this could be most useful for and um i'm not saying that it's a, a magic you know panacea is there any pushback from certain wings of the medical or science field or from the government itself good question um at this point there hasn't really been any pushback. I think certain institutions might be uh, less open to allowing this research to go forward. But as far as I've heard, any um, any researcher who has wanted to do this and has got the fund gotten the funding uh, has been able to do it. Hmm. Uh, and so, I think the big bottleneck right now is is funding. Hmm. Uh, none of this research is government funded at this point. Mm. So the NIMH, um, the National Institute on Mental Health and the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, have not funded these studies yet. Mm. It's all private, private funding. Through universities or through other, other ways? So, um, it's all, uh, privately funded by donors. Mm. Uh, and there are a few major funders, uh, I think Hefter Research Institute um, has funded a number of these trials, um, and they they um, have donors who who want to fund this research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the hope is that uh, if these early phase these phase two trials are promising, that the NIMH will start to you know think twice about funding this. Mm. For the 30 or 40 year gap between when the studies stopped in the late 60s and I don't know, the early 2000s, whenever they popped up again, 40 years or so, um, was it illegal to perform those forms of research or was it just frowned upon? And if it was illegal, what was there a law passed by Congress? How did that happen? So it never was illegal to do the research. Um, it was uh, my understanding is that the the bureaucratic hurdles to doing it and the stigma taboo associated with it were insurmountable mm-hmm. for for years after um, you know the the early seventies and kind of the explosion of recreational abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just having the the stigma fade a little bit and having um, people a little bit less sensitive to that. Um, it's been, uh, it's no longer a, a career killer to be interested mm-hmm. in this research. Um, and so it still requires getting a, uh, a special uh, schedule one license mm-hmm. that is quite a process uh, to get through, um, but it is doable and mm-hmm. it technically there's no law that's changed, but um but uh, people are, you know, just more open to letting this research happen right now. Mm. Last question I want to ask you. If someone listens to this who is interested in participating in, in studies like this, whether they, they personally have an addiction or they're dealing with, uh, they have a chronic illness or an end-of-life situation where they know um, their their life will be ending sometime soon and they're interested in potentially getting involved is there somewhere where they can go or something that they, someone who they can email or call to, to seek this out to potentially um, 
become a part of an experiment and potentially have the sort of effects that we've been talking about tonight? I wish I could say yes, uh, but the studies are so small right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure of which ones are recruiting. Um, that there's really not much of an opportunity for, you know, the general population to, um, you know, get this treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, when it gets to phase three, um, we'll, we'll be seeing this research done at uh, different sites. Um, there'll be uh, more people doing it. There'll, there'll certainly be more openings uh, for, you know, for patients to enroll. Mm. Uh, but at this point, the studies are, are extremely small. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't personally know of um, studies that are recruiting at this moment. Mm. Um, although, um, you know, I know that, uh, I guess I do know that the NYU group um, and University of New Mexico are, are doing this alcoholism trial. Um, so I guess, you know, that would be the one, the one place to, to look. But mm -hmm. those are, as I said, really small studies. Mm -hmm. So. And just as a quick follow-up on that, you said once it gets to a stage three format that there might be more opportunities for testing. Walk me through exactly how those stages work, and is there a stage at which it becomes something a, a something that a licensed physician like yourself could potentially uh, write a prescription for someone to participate in a program where they're taking psilocybin for addiction or some other ailment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so... Their uh, trials start with phase one or preclinical, pre kind of demonstrating safety. Mm. Um, phase two is um, smaller trials looking looking at efficacy, but um, but with a, a small pep population. And then phase three is um, you're just you're doing the same studies with a larger population, with the goal of getting uh, the medicine approved. Um, FDA approval. Mm. And so uh, typically studies need a, a certain number, um, a certain number of participants to go through the FDA, FDA approval process. And that's usually, um, my understanding is that it's, it's in the range of, you know, four or 500 uh, patients. Um, and at that point, uh, if the medications or the, you know, Psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy gets approved by the FDA. Um, the drugs would have to be declass or uh, reclassified to Schedule Two um, from Schedule One, uh, which means that they Schedule Two is, um, you know, quite controlled, but um, there are medical uses for them. Mm. Uh, and so at, at that point, um, it's it would be possible for certain clinics with certain credentialing mm -hmm. um, with trained therapists could, you know, administer these drugs, you know, in the context of therapy. And in principle, that could be applied to the entire country as long as those requirements are met. That's right. Yeah. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.